Uh, first of all, I would like to thank Dr. Michael Willis and Dr. Mohamed Salah Omri for inviting me. And I also would like to thank uh, Nabil Sherni for uh, also suggesting my name when they were looking for women, for scholars working on uh, Tunisian feminist movements. Um, it is a, indeed a strange uh, title, but it's not a title that I have invented. These are words that you always hear women you know, using from the left or from the right. Uh, Daughters of Bourguiba is usually um, a word that refers to the women who are my generation, late 40s, early 50s. Um, the, the daughters of Khadija, this is for the new generation of Tunisian women, many of whom uh, vote are you know, pro-Nada. So this is, I mean, I'm using these as symbols to talk about the Islamist feminist movement and also the other Bourguibist or secular movements that we see in Tunisia today. Um, about 10 years ago, I had a student in Hayal Khadra, and that's how she inspired me with the daughters of Khadija, and she told me, uh, she'd like to write her honest thesis on, on Khadija as a role model for all Muslim women. And I said, what text are you working on? I said, she said, the Quran. And I said, there is no Khadija in the Quran. <laughs> um, so for me, <laughs> it's just not mentioned at all. So I said, do you have any literary text you want to work on? And in the end, she didn't, she's, you know, she didn't want to use literary text. She was sticking to a text, the Quran, and there is no Khadija in the Quran. So she abandoned that project. So. So later on, I kept you know, thinking about how we look at those religious, especially women figures, Aisha or Khadija. And lately, um, I've heard, uh, what's her name? Johar Atis, she made this uh, uh, speech before the uh, 2011 campaigns, where she said, I am the daughter of Aisha. She taught us the, but how to be in the battlefield. But this is also <laughs> even stranger than Khadija, because Khadija at least had three daughters and a son. But uh, Aisha did not have any children. So it's even more problematic to be the daughter of Aisha. OK. The development of the Tunisian uh, feminist movement is deeply rooted in the country's nationalist and reformist movement influenced by the Nada movement in the Middle East. As early as 1867, Khairuddin Besha called for women's education. In 1897, Sheikh Mohammed Snusi published The Blooming of the Flower or a Study of Women in Islam, in which he defended Muslim women's education as a religious duty. Co-authored by César Ben Attar, the liberal spirit of the Quran called for the education of Tunisian women and abolition of the veil. These new ideas about women's emancipation were propagated not only through literary clubs like Khaldunia or Jmi'at Taht Sur, but also newspapers like Zohra, Al Hadira, Al Hadira, sorry, Al Sawab, Al Nahda, Murshid Al Umma, Al Badr, Lisan Al Shaab, the Khairuddin Review, Tunis Socialist, and L'Etendard Tunisien. In 1930, the nationalist and trade unionist Tahar al-Haddad published his controversial book, Imra'atuna fi sharia wal-mujtama, in which he called for women's education, gender equity in inheritance, and the abolition of the veil, polygamy, the triple divorce formula, and the practice of marriage without consent. In al-Haddad's nationalist and patriarchal feminism, women's emancipation falls within the larger project of liberating the nation French from French colonialism. For him, the Tunisian woman exists only as the future mother and wife of male nationalist subjects, not as an individual. 
It was not until the 1980s and 1990s that the stories of the mothers of Tunisian feminism came into being with the rise of a new generation of Tunisian women scholars. In her 1993 study, Ilham Marzouki unearthed several organizations led by women from the traditional bourgeoisie of Tunis in French colonial Tunisia, such as the Club of the Tunisian Young Woman, presided over by Tawhida Farhat, the Muslim Union of the Women of Tunisia, presided over by Bashira bin Murad, the daughter of Sheikh Mohammed Salah bin Murad, who wrote, uh, who attacked uh, Al Haddad. Um, uh, he wrote Al Hidad ala Imra'at Al Haddad, mourning over Al Haddad's woman. Uh, and the women's section in the Association of Young Tunisian Women, headed by Suad Khatesh, the wife of Sheikh Mohammed Salah al Naifer, one of the most prominent religious scholars at the Zituna Mosque. So in this early period where we talk about mothers of Tunisian women, all of them were from the bourgeoisie and they belonged to religious you know, scholars. And we find the same thing today even with Ayad bin Ashur or his sister. I mean, all of these, this is part of the old bourgeoisie of, uh, of Tunis. These associations were less interested in improving women's status than they were in supporting education, doing social work, and defending Tunisia Arab and Islamic identity against the threat of acculturation and assimilation into French culture. In 1937, the UMFT held a ceremony to honor, uh, in honor of Tawhida bin Sheikh, the first Tunisian woman to receive a medical degree. And during the fight for independence, many women affiliated with these organizations and du GTT as well and the Neo Destour were harassed by the French uh, securities. They were arrested for organizing secret meetings and participating in demonstrations against the French colonial authorities. The most famous of these is the January 15, 1952, women's demonstration of Beja, which sparked off several others throughout the country. Many Tunisian women were put under house arrest, imprisoned, and sent over to labor camps in Bin Gerden, Rmeda, uh, and uh, Tbursuk. In 1952, the Red Cross reported the rape of women and the murder of children in Tazarka, Ma'amura, Klibia area during the brutal Operation Ratissage du Cabon, launched on January 28, 1952, by Résident Général Jean-Daude Clock who used terror to beat the country into submission. Um, the post-colonial period. The post-colonial period is marked by two phases of institutional feminism. The state feminism of Bourguiba until 1987 and that of President Zil Abdin Ben Ali. Even though he defended the veil in 1928 as the symbol of Tunisia's Arabo-Islamic identity, once he became president, Bourguiba has attacked the veil as a foreign custom and claimed for himself the paternity of both Tunisian feminism and nationalism. On August 13, 1956, he promulgated the personal status code, which remains until today unequaled in the Arab world, in that it abolished polygamy and marriage without consent and replaced the practice of repudiation with divorce courts, which grant both spouses the right to file for divorce. Through the National Union of Tunisian Women, UNFRT, a feminist organization affiliated with the state, Bourguiba launched his family planning campaign and urged the women to remove the veil, which he often dismissed as a miserable chiffon. Uh, and uh, this emancipatory project 
came to a halt in the 1970s when in an effort to undermine the left, I think somebody talked about this this morning, when in an effort, in an effort to undermine the left, Bourguiba started catering to the religious right. In 1973, the marriage of Muslim women to non-Muslim men was forbidden. As Bessis has pointed out, far from being entirely secular, the status of Tunisian women remains quite ambiguous. Treated as of the association of, um, sorry, um, uh, so uh, with the uh, PSC, women seem to be equal uh, in public law, uh, such as education, employment. We do have equal pay for equal work, which does not exist in the US. But our, uh, but our discrimination is in the private law, in family law, in inheritance law or custody uh, issues. In a deliberate effort to undermine the myth of Bourguiba as the sole liberator of the Tunisian woman, Ben Ali highlighted the feminist contributions of the other fathers of modern Tunisia, such as Thalbi, who was Bourguiba's political rival. Situating himself in opposition to Bourguiba's secularism, Ben Ali reopened the Zituna Mosque that was closed by his predecessor and renovated the mausoleum of the Sufi Sidi Abu in 1996 to emphasize Tunisia's Arabo-Islamic heritage. In 2009, Ben Ali's son-in-law, Sakhir al-Matri, opened the first Islamic bank in North Africa. After breaking up with the Islamists in 1990, Ben Ali renewed himself with Bourguiba's legacy of state feminism to silence all criticism of his regime in the West. In 1991, he created the Women's Center of Information and Documentation Credif and the Ministry of the Affairs of Women, Children, and Childhood. Trying to surpass Bourguiba, he enacted laws recognizing the rights of single mothers and children born out of wedlock in 1998, replaced the word obedience to the husband in clause 23 of the PSC and with the word kindness, and granted Tunisian women the right to give their citizenship to their children born of a foreign husband. However, even this law remains patriarchal because if it is the Tunisian uh, if the husband is Tunisian, he does not need the approval of his foreign wife to give citizenship to his children. But if I'm married to a foreigner and I want to give them my Tunisian uh, citizenship, I need the approval of my foreign husband. So that such a provision does not exist for the Tunisian male. Um, in opposition to the state feminism from above, there was an, another independent grassroots feminist movement that emerged in Tunisia in the last three decades asking for separation between state and religion, gender equity in inheritance, and full equality in citizenship. Esana Ben Ashur, head of the, she used to be the head of the uh, Association of Tunisian Women Democrats, points out, state feminism, far from guaranteeing muatana, or equal or full citizenship, the Tunis to Tunisian women has held them, in fact, hostage of both the religious establishment and the political expediency of the state. This movement is represented by Tahar al-Hadad Cultural Club, the Festival of Tabarka of Sama 1979, the Nisa Review of 84, the Women's Committee in the Tunisian Syndicate, and the Commission on Women's Rights in 85, operating with the Tunisian Human Rights League. In the post-revolution, uh, um, uh, what struck me in the post-revolution post is the amalgamation that we have between independent feminist movements and between uh, the, state, uh, the state union, you know, by the one which was controlled by the state. Um, in the, uh, the post-revolution, there was an, an outburst of violence um, against university women after the uh, October 23rd, 2011, uh, and uh, this 
um, this, uh, th I mean, there were, and th many of these women um, have been, instead of going out and fighting for new rights for Tunisian women, uh, many of these independent, especially the Association of Women Democrats, have been forced in a defensive position to defend the PSC, the rights we already have, rather than ask for more. Um, and this because m most, many of the women, and I've, I've uh, read few articles and, very, and some book reviews, uh, some books about uh, how the association of, uh, uh, especially the women associated with the, asso the Association of Women Democrats uh, were harassing veiled women. That story has never happened. There are no women uh, who, have, who, no women who have written letter to Ben Ali uh, asking him to force the women, uh, the veiled women to remove their hijab in the, in the, at the university. It's uh, just post-revolutionary propaganda against the uh, Association of Tunisian Women Democrats. Um, and I would like to um, introduce a little bit the uh, Association of Tunisian Women Democrats. It's true, originally, uh, it is from the urban bourgeoisie of Tunis, and many of its members are uh, from La Marsa. Uh, however, in the last decade, um, they have become a little bit more inclusive. They, uh, they have ac even accepted women wearing the veil. It's true, because in the beginning, because from where they were from the upper classes, they did not wear the veil. But slowly, uh, they started including more people from different uh, social classes. And um, this movement acquired a prominent and politically contentious role since the Tunisian Revolution in 2011, mainly because its members, mostly women lawyers and academics, are the most vocal group opposing another party's project of uh, Islamizing Tunisian society. A year after the revolution, an international jury granted this association the 2012 Simone de Beauvoir Prize for the liberty of women in recognition for, of its fight for women's rights, gender equity, democracy, social justice, and call for separation between state and religion. Which, of course, um, this I thought this um, prize was a uh, double-edged sword. On the one hand, they get international recognition, uh, but in Tunisia, it didn't... Um, uh, please the people who are conservative. We don't want to have anything to do with France and, the, and Simone de Beauvoir. So uh, as opposed to, uh, we are learning feminism not from Simone de Beauvoir, but we are learning feminism from Aisha, from Khadija, from Fatima Fehriya, etc. Um, okay. Um, with, the, with the fall, I would say, of the Ben Ali regime, uh, new feminisms have emerged in Tunisia. The first, I would say, maybe it existed before, but it was hidden. The first is on the right and the religious, and it's inspired by both the Anglo-centric uh, Anglo uh, Anglo discourse of Islamic democracy and the Islamic Gulf-style feminism that stresses gender complementarity rather than the language of human rights and equal citizenship. The second form is cyber feminism. There was no cyber feminism before the revolution. Uh, this is perhaps the second form, the most, the most important form of feminism that developed in the post-revolution. Um, I have been studying for some time the secular and religious feminist myths on, uh, on both sides of the political uh, stress uh, spectrum. Uh, we can, uh, what is important for me is not whether those myths are true or not. Many of them are not. But for me, that's not important. What is important about myth is what they tell me today. What do, they, do myths tell me about those who uh, produce them? And what do they tell me about, their, um, about the historical? Uh, it's over? 
or five? No, five. Okay, okay. Um, uh, for instance, one of these myths uh, on the sec on the on the left side uh, on the left side, they say uh, we are the daughters of Bourguiba. He did everything for us. Uh, he's the father of modern Tunisia, secular. But if you look at the PSC, it's not a hundred percent secular. Uh, it's, I mean, many of it is based on Tunisian uh, religious law, which is the product of the, uh, you know, of the uh, Zaytuna Mosque. It's many of the things. I mean, it, it is a religi religious law. It's not. It's not a hundred percent secular. Um, the, or you can find another group of um, secular feminists who say we are the daughters or uh, of Elisa. Dido, the Queen Alisa, or we are the Amazons, we are the daughters of the Amazon and the, uh, the descendants of the Amazons. And they got this idea from Virgil, uh, book four of the Aeneid, you know, the, where he presents Dido as the Queen of the Amazons. Um, and, then on the, and then on the other hand, uh, uh, you will find uh, people on the religious right who, who use, you know, uh, Fatima al-Fahriya, or who talk about, uh, you know, who taught, uh, who founded the first university in Tunisia. Uh, and the, if you listen to Jawahar Atis, he says, uh, she founded, founded the Tunisian university before uh, Oxford and before uh, the Sorbonne. So it's one of those myths that they like to uh, repeat to themselves. Um, and uh, in, in Western media in particular, when they talk about, talk about the clash between secular feminists and Islamic feminists, they say it's a clash between the uh, uh, secular francophone elite and between the Arabophone uh, masses. Um, this is... That, this dichotomy does not reflect exactly what's happening in Tunisia because all Tunisians, whether they are francophone, anglophone, or arabophone, uh, actually most Tunisians are uh, trilingual. They speak all of these languages. Uh, and I would like to say that the Tunisian feminism uh, is, uh, is true. It's, uh, I mean, it's not, uh, it is secular feminism, but it was not created by, uh, I would say, by, uh, created by uh, professors of French in Tunisia, not by francophone professors, you know, who teach French, but this is what is lost in the discussion. The, the biggest Tunisian feminists are from the school of Tunis. Uh, you have Olfa Youssef, you have Rajab bin Slema, uh, you have uh, uh, Gra uh, Grami, uh, you have Akbel uh, Garbi, you have Neila Selini, all of them studied in Tunisia, worked in Tunisia, and all of them are Arabic professors and they are specialists in Islamic studies, you know, and Quranic studies. So to say that uh, Tunisian feminism is a francophone elite uh, import, this is it's trying actually to denativize you know, all the scholarly work that has been done in Tunisia over the last 20 years. And I would like to, um, add, to correct that because the Tunisian, uh, fem it's true, it's inspired uh, by different forms of feminism in the world, not just Simone de Beauvoir, but it's also, they built all of their works on uh, Al-Haddad, on Al-Thalbi, and there is a lot of uh, dialogue and they see themselves as a continuation of the reformist thought in the Zituna, uh, from the Zituna school, 
So, uh, so to say uh, that Tunisian feminism is uh, just the, uh, the product of uh, the Francophone elite for me is, is not knowing what's happening in Tunisia. Uh, the, those feminists know French, English, and they write in all languages. Uh, we, I also, what is lost in the translation uh, is when we talk about the uh, Arabophone mass Islamists, many of them actually uh, are English professors. Uh, many of them uh, teach in American universities. So uh, I would like to suggest also that the, uh, there is a clash between those scholars in Tunisia and those scholars who are abroad, you know, who uh, especially in the Anglo-Saxon school and those who are in the, uh, you know, those in, uh, who, who, uh, who are in Tunisia. And now those who are, uh, I would say, who are most vocal against uh, the Islamists are the Tunisian women scholars who write, not just women, and I would like to say also men. There are many Tunisian men who are involved also in, uh, in women's rights. Um, and these are the ones who are, you know, uh, they, and they read it from uh, an Islamic or from an Arabocentric perspective, okay? Um, I'll just go to the conclusion I have, maybe we can, uh, okay. Um, in L'Imaginaire Maghrebin, Abdel Wahab Bouhdiba argues that the Maghribi imaginary is haunted by the absence of the father and an incestuous attraction to the mother. To this, I would like to add that it is the Maghribi male imaginary that is haunted by the absence of the father. As the father-daughter dyad in Tunisian politics suggests, there is a strong father-daughter connection in Tunisian folklore, literature, and politics. Equally revealing in this, in this context is the metaphor of the orphan, l'aitem, that we always hear, left and right. Uh, we often hear, you know, aitem Bourguiba, aitem Ben Ali, or aitem uh, França. There is uh, even a new book that came out by Semir Orbel entitled Orphelin de Bourguiba, héritier du prophète. Um, and then, and, and I've been looking at this idiot, you know, the image, the daughters of Bourguiba, and then Orphelin de Bourguiba, and there is some kind of unspoken dialogue between these two metaphors. I'm not an orphan, I'm the daughter of Bourguiba. Um, and um, in his 2002 book, uh, uh, Psychoanalysis and the Challenge of Islam, the Tunisian psychiatrist Fathi bin Slema departs from the Judeo-Christian framework, which underlines Freud and Lacan's psychoanalytic formulation of the father-son conflict and argues that the God of Islam has neither sons nor daughters. Instead of the father-son conflict, he holds the father's abandonment of his wives or children as the primary trauma in the Muslim psyche. From the story of Abraham's abandonment of Hagar and Ishmael in the desert to Muhammad's status as an orphan and symbolic abandonment through death by his biological and adoptive fathers. I would like to argue that the metaphors of Aitem, or orphans, is symbolic not merely of the absence of the biological father, but of the present. It is the crisis of the son and daughter who clings to the past because there is no future, there is no transitional justice, there is no reform. Thank you.